Hello and welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Professor Ellen O'Sullivan. I am a council member of the Royal College of Anaesthetists and I chair the Global Partnership Committee. I'm also a clinical anaesthesiologist in Dublin in Ireland. Now I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Sonia Akrimi, who's an ST7 working in King's Hospital London, so towards the end of her training, and um, she's involved in the Zambian Anesthesia Development Programme and the Global Anesthesia Development Programme. I'm also joined by Dr. Emma Cooley, who is a consultant anaesthetist at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary and secretary of GADP, that's the Global Anesthesia Development Programme. And also from Zambia, I'm joined by Dr. Sampui Chanda, who works in the Endola Hospital in the Copper Belt in Zambia, and Dr. Arthur Polila, who's working in UTH in Zambia, in, Lusa in Lusaka, in Zambia. So welcome everybody and looking forward to joining you today. Um, first of all, um, I'm going to just start by asking you um, about um, the enormous challenges we're all facing due to COVID-19. As we all know, all healthcare systems have been put under enormous strain. And this has been particularly, I suppose, a problem in low and middle income countries where we know that limited infrastructure and workforce challenges have compounded um, the situation even further. And um, today we're going to focus on the experiences of anaesthetists in Zambia and how they're tackling this ongoing pandemic. So my first question is going to be to Sampui. And just like to know, Sampui, if you could give us an overview of how the COVID has impacted upon Zambia in the past 18 months. Um, I think what you'll find probably when Arthur starts to talk is the experience may be slightly different just because of my location as opposed to on the Copper Belt, as opposed to Arthur being in Lusaka. But generally speaking, I think with each wave that we've had, the burden of disease has become greater. So when we first had, when we had the first wave, we found that it was um, it was more manageable. We had majority of very mild cases, moderate cases. We weren't seeing as many critically ill patients as we started to see in the second and third waves. This last wave that we've had with the Delta variant was particularly burdensome on us. Um, hospitals were overwhelmed completely across the country, especially those that had to provide critical care because we just saw huge numbers of critically ill patients. So I think Arthur maybe can add a bit more to that because of the situation in Lusaka being slightly more overwhelming than it was here on the Copper Belt. Thank you, Sompwe. Um, I'd like to agree with Sompwe. Each successful, each subsequent wave has been more and more uh, demanding and it has presented itself with more and more, more challenges. Um, just like uh, Ndola, um, We've had several challenges, and um, um, at the peak of of of, of um, uh, the last wave, we had a situation whereby um, bed space was limited, and some in some instances, patients who would otherwise have needed admission were were basically turned away. The uh, bed capacity was uh, occupied at the height of of, of the wave to full capacity and 
And um, I think that played to the high mortality of the most recent wave. And every wave has seen um, that patients are becoming more and more sick. Maybe even younger patients are pre presenting in more critical illness than um, the previous waves. So um, we are at the moment trying to brace ourselves for, for what is yet to come. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Thank you. And just with regard to, I know there's a shortage everywhere of intensive care beds um, everywhere in the world, I think, at this point. But um, having worked and been in Malawi quite, quite a bit, I think you're similar in having not many intensive care beds. Would that be, um, how did you manage that? Um, maybe Sampui could answer that. Um, so essentially what happened at the hospital where I am in Ndola was that we had to set up an HDU outside of ICU in the COVID ward, basically, um, where we had a ventilator and some other um, intensive care equipment just to try and mitigate the fact that we didn't have enough space on ICU for all the critically ill patients. So we just tried to get them as stable as possible, maybe keep them um, as long as we could before trying to transfer them into an ICU. It was just, it was really just um, about um, trying to find solutions as, as best as we could and improvising a lot. So we've heard from the experiences in Zambia. I'm wondering, Sonia, if you could just compare that to the experience, your experience in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, the UK has been under considerable strain in its health service as well. Um, but I think one of the biggest differences is that in the UK, we were fortunate enough to have established health systems that had greater numbers of staff, greater numbers of specialists and greater resources prior to this pandemic happening. And therefore, that gave us a lot more capacity to rapidly upscale um, to enable the critical care to be able to provide that, that level of care to everybody that needed it. Um, at the same time, redeployment happened a lot to a number of staff in the NHS. And again, that requires a huge amount of, um, a huge staff numbers to be able to achieve in the first place. In Zambia, for example, there are very few physician anaesthetists and therefore a lot of the service is, is dependent on trainees as much as it is their consultants. And that means that as trainees are moved to deal with intensive care cases and high numbers of patients, there's a lot less capacity to provide essential surgery. And in Zambia and similar countries, we were already operating at a deficit where not everybody that needed an important operation was able to get it before the pandemic started. And another thing that springs to my mind is actually patients who need hospital care who don't have COVID-19. For example, in the UK, we're very privileged that we have very low numbers of maternal mortality and infant mortality because of established maternal and child health care. These are the very systems that are being overstretched even more so in low and middle income countries because of the way that hospitals have had to adapt to manage high numbers of critically unwell patients. 
thank you, Sonia. Um, that puts into reality the, the issues. Um, but I think one thing during this pandemic that really maybe came as a bit of surprise, maybe shouldn't have, but we, we appreciated what a precious resource oxygen is in medicine. And even in the UK and Ireland, we had worried about oxygen capacity in our hospitals, probably for the first time um, in this part of the world during the pandemic. So Sampui and Arthur, I'd just like to know how we had, have you experienced problems with oxygen in um, supply in Zambia? Um, absolutely. Um, it's been a huge problem as well here. But I mean, as you said previously, because um, critically ill patients were a very small segment of the population, um, oxygen supplies were not regarded um, as sacredly, I could almost say, as they are now, because we're starting to see large numbers of critically ill patients. And so the oxygen demand really shot up quite significantly. Um, and we also had to very quickly adapt, um, try and keep up um, and find out how we could make short term, middle term and long term solutions to the oxygen challenges that we're having as a result of being in this pandemic. Um, so it's it's there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of um, scrambling. There's a lot of partnering as well um, across the public and private sector with various partners to try and meet the demand and try and get oxygen to the people who really do need it the most. Arthur, would you like to comment um, from your experience in Lusaka? Thank you. Um, it's been pretty much uh, a similar piece picture in Osaka. Um, um, you have to bear in mind that uh, oxygen had been a problem prior to, to COVID. The um, quality and um, consistency of oxygen supply even before COVID was a, was a problem. And uh, the coming of problem has is, is essentially stressed the system su such that we have, we, we, we have struggled to even supply um, normal service out to non-COVID patients. So uh, the COVID patients have been affected, yes, but the non-COVID patients have also been affected. Um, through various partnerships from well-wishers, NGOs, and indeed the private sector, there's been a response in place to um, sort of avert uh, the problem. Some mitiga mitigation measures have been put in place. Oxygen cylinders have had to be purchased where um, oxygen plants have been sent in their in their supply of oxygen. And during the 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 the, the, um, the waves the, themselves at the peak of, of, of each wave, we've had uh, instances where the oxygen is is irregular and um, sometimes comes to uh, a complete shutdown, and um, that's due to several reasons, which I may not be privy to at the moment. But we we have, in general terms, um, struggled with uh, the supply of oxygen from manufacturing to distributions. Just the logistical aspects of having to fill a cylinder and getting it to where it's supposed to be used, where it's needed, where the patient is, that too has has been a challenge. But it's gotten better. The response has has gotten better despite um, um, the fact that uh, the, the patients uh, are more and more with, with each wave. We've um, 
we've gotten some partners um, who have uh, supplied some oxygen cylinders, but uh, I don't think it, it meets demand at, at the peak of, of, of the wave, because even with the support that we've received, uh, we still who have died because of uh, unavailability of, of oxygen. Um, thank you. Th th thank you. Thank you both. Um, you both mentioned the importance of partnerships and your partners and um, having those in place. And I'd like to ask Emma to tell us a bit about the Zambian Anesthetic Development Programme, which has been a significant UK Zambia partnership for a number of years now. And how has this helped, I think, anaesthetic services in particular, I suppose, at this point when we're talking about today is the COVID response. Oh, thank you very much, Ellen. So, um, yes, the Zambian Anaesthetic Development Programme, we've, we've been in Zambia since 2012, helping support the physician anaesthesia training. So developing curriculums and supporting them um, in country. So that's now part of a charity that's called Global Anaesthesia Development Partnerships. Um, and our website is gadpartnerships.com. And we usually have in-country junior and senior trainees who are helping with that bi-directional learning, quality improvement and providing training for the local Zambian anaesthetists. And I was part of that as a senior trainee and I've stayed involved for a number of years helping with that sort of recruitment side of things and helping get um, fellows into Zambia. But unfortunately with the recent pandemic, the trainees were pulled back to the UK, but we haven't stopped and we've tried to ensure that we're still providing support remotely. And recently we've had the first um, of our remote fellows, who's a UK trainee who's actually already spent some time in Zambia. And she's been helping to try and support and, and maintain the training for um, the Zambian physicians during their, their training programmes. And also we've tried to help with projects relating specifically to COVID, um, whether that be with PPE or buddy-buddy systems to ensure that they've still got that link to the UK. And I think I'll pass on to Sompwe, who can hopefully give you a bit more of her um, in, input and how she feels that ADP has affected her and her training. Um, I think I am... Um... I, as well as Arthur, are like direct products of the ZADP program. Um, ZADP fellows were integral parts of my training right from first year until I wrote my final exam. Um, so they've been a very important part of developing anesthetic services here in Zambia. Um, and I think that it's really an amazing thing that the support extends just beyond academic and providing the academic support that they have, um, especially with things like PPE distribution and um, trying to get oxygen concentrators here and things like that. I think it's really important, especially because the anesthesia fraternity in Zambia is still so small, to know that we do have partners who are out there to help us um, get through what is, you know, an, an unprecedented event. Um, I don't think any of us ever anticipated we'd be in the middle of a pandemic that's lasted 18 months and still going. Um, so it's it's a really it's really been just a great partnership to have. And also because they're still helping support our academic program, we still have trainees that we need to help get ready for their exams and get through their exams. And still we still have a responsibility to produce 
anesthetists of the highest quality and standard that we absolutely can. And having a partnership with um, GADP really is helping us ensure that. And I'm sure Arthur would very much agree with that sentiment. Absolutely. Throughout my training, uh, ZADP, GADP has been quite influential in uh, who I am today. Um, from the training um, up until writing the final exams in the middle of, of the COVID pandemic, um, Viva practice material for, for training, um, the, the list is uh, endless. And through um, the support during COVID, as you may know, um, we're, we've been quite behind in terms of the waves. The UK and indeed the rest of the world has uh, about six months ahead of us in terms of, of the waves. So um, through the partnerships that we have, we've been able to get some tips on how they've been managing their patients, what ideas that um, uh, they have that we can possibly apply in our setting. That has been quite, quite, I mean, it's given us an upper hand. It, it gave us an idea of what to expect before before we ever saw a COVID patient. They had seen the patients way before, before we did. And uh, the support continues through um, the support through uh, donations such as uh, PPE uh, and other, 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 other um, useful material. When, when the COVID-19 pandemic started as a partnership, it was really hard to know exactly what we could do to help. As um, both Sonpe and, and Emma have, have mentioned. Um, and I think the thing that I, we have learned is that because we had worked together for so many years prior to that and we knew each other very well, we had the capacity, despite a lot of challenges, to be able to communicate and adapt repeatedly to deal with needs as they emerged. And that's the second thing that I think I've learned personally is that needs really have emerged. So at the beginning of this pandemic, um, the greatest concerns of our partners often centred around PPE and stopping the spread of infection in hospital. And that led to our PPE campaign in which we um, developed a number of resources for anaesthesia and critical care staff. Um, to help protect them inside the hospital. And then the training programme emerged as a need and the need that in a country like Zambia, you can't, you, you just simply can't afford to delay exams because it means graduating um, a number of, well, missing the opportunity to graduate a number of specialists. And all of the exams have happened in the Zambian training programme throughout the pandemic on time as they were expected to. Um, and all of our congratulations, I think, at this point go to Arthur, who during the pandemic, um, he, as well as many of his colleagues, finished both his Master of Medicine in Anesthesia and graduated at Connexa, um, the regional exams as well. So it's just an incredible achievement. Um, and then the final thing is oxygen with the third wave and the huge number of, of patients that um, we experienced where that became a priority at that point and we have our ZADP take a deep breath campaign which can be followed on social media through hashtag take a deep breath and also our website as well. Um, so I think the thing that I've really learned is how the needs have emerged but that with a, an adaptable partnership in, in constant communication it's surprising how much that can be achieved. 
Mm. That that's a um, great in, in endorsement of this this uh, excellent program, the ZADP program to date. Um, I'm just going to move on to um, another topic now. I mean, to deal with this pandemic, I think we're all um, of the one mind that the way around that is to vaccinate as much as many people as we can. So, Sampui, what about vaccinations in Zambia? Have they been available? What's the uptake like? And what do you see are the challenges in the distribution of vaccines in Zambia? Well, um, vaccinations, of course, here took a bit of a, a while to become available, but we did um, eventually receive our first um, batch of vaccinations. And since then, we have received regular re regular supply, I beg your pardon, of vaccinations, both AstraZeneca. We've also had some from Sinopharm, Johnson & Johnson, and we expect um, others like Pfizer to start coming in this month. Um, unfortunately, because of a lot of misinformation around vaccination, um, a lot of myths around vaccination, and even just COVID itself, the uptake has not been as, as great as we would have wanted it to be at this stage. Um, typically, what we tend to see is that when we have a peak of a wave, that's when more people go out and get vaccinated. So um, presently, as we speak, we're coming to the end of our third wave and vaccination levels have started to taper off again. So people are not feeling um I would say the need to be vaccinated simply because they feel that, oh, it's not that bad or there's no COVID. I don't know anybody who's sick. Um, you know, there are also a lot of myths around whether or not vaccination is going to cause problems with fertility, etc. In all fairness, the ministry is trying to um, battle the misinformation. They are trying to produce more materials that are more relatable to people regarding information and COVID. But um, again, it's it's going to be a bit of an uphill battle, but we need it's something that we need to get on top of because we can't keep waiting for waves to cause people to go out and get vaccines. It's just, it's not something that is going to be feasible or practical for us. Yeah, but thank you. Um, and um, Sonia, yeah, I mean, the difference between the vaccine, vaccination rates in high and low income countries has been a topic of discussion for us in the medical literature as well and in the press and on social media, showing the high versus the lower vaccination rates um, between low middle income countries and higher income countries. And um, in your um, view, um, the lower number of adults vaccinated that we're still seeing affect this pandemic, I suppose, is, is one question. But secondly, um, is it a question of there's plenty supply, but there's no the uptake is low? Um, I know we've written about this uh, um, recently in a letter which was co-signed by the Royal College, but perhaps you'd give us um, your view on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with Sompwe that there's been vaccine hesitancy all over the world, um, but also that availability of the product and distribution has been a big issue that has disproportionately affected low and middle income countries. And the World Health Organization speak on this issue a lot, that there's often little that countries can do to really advocate for the need to have the vaccine when they have too few doses for their population. And um, when the third wave, as Sompwe mentioned, happened very recently in Zambia, many other sub-Saharan African countries were experiencing high case numbers at the same time or are experiencing, have experienced since. And we're all very afraid of a fourth wave occurring 
which sadly is likely to happen if the majority of adults remain unvaccinated. So I think we really need to emphasise our responsibility globally to ensure equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and that's why I and everybody else in ZADP and GADP is so proud of the letter that you mentioned that has been co-signed by the Royal College. In fact, 13 organisations representing anaesthetists all over the UK co-signed that letter, explaining that in their professional opinion as anaesthetists and professionals that have looked after COVID, patients with COVID-19, that we really need the entire world to have equal access to this vaccine. And also we need to support the health systems that are in place in being able to cope with the pandemic and rolling out vaccination programmes. And that we need this, it, it, you said the word earlier, a partnership. We need this level of partnership all across the world for this pandemic to end. Mm. I think that they're, they're very good points. And as Mike Ryan from the WHO says, um, everybody needs a life jacket, not, not just certain <laughs> countries. And I think that this is the issue that's rising now because in our world, in the UK and Ireland, we're talking now about booster doses because some of us are eight months since we've got our first dose. So there's a question of that. But I think it, it, we just need to try and ensure that um, vaccines are available. And along with the education, Sampri, I think that 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 you mentioned. Emma, do you want to um, make any comment on that or just? No, I think I just agree with everything that's that's been said. There's, I, I mean, at the moment we're seeing younger people with the Delta variant, and often it's women and of a pregnancy age. And I suppose one of the things is just ensuring that type of education as well, because it's been difficult even within the UK to get um, that population vaccinated. And the challenges in vaccine rollout are it's important not just to think about um, the quantity of the vaccine, but as Sampoy says, it's also a lot about education and working together globally to ensure that we can distribute what we've got available equitably. Right. So we're coming towards the end, but Sampoy, just looking forward, um, what supports do you think are needed locally to continue to manage this pandemic? What would be your kind of top ask <laughs> for all those <laughs> listeners um, to this podcast? Um, more oxygen. <laughs> right. um, I think that, as we've said um, before in the in the podcast, I think that having partnerships are so important, um, not just from a learning perspective, as I mentioned, but I mean also from the supply, from the knowledge, and for advocacy as well. Um, it's very important for us to know that we have partners globally who we can stand with to say that this is the situation that we're facing and we need help. Um, the honest truth is that um, our governments are struggling. They're trying their best, but unfortunately, um, you know, it's it's overwhelming. Each, each subsequent wave becomes more and more overwhelming to deal with. And there's so many responsibilities that each government has to deal with in a COVID pandemic. Um, for us in sub-Saharan Africa, tropical diseases remain a huge problem. Malaria is still a problem. TB is still a problem. So those partnerships are very, very important. Um, so I think that I would probably say that um, for people who are wondering how they can get involved, find out if there are organizations like ZADP or G GADP in a country that you would like to get involved 
with um, and partner with them to see if you how you can help meet some of the needs in those countries because to individually list every need would would take forever. Um, I think that that would be the most important thing that I would I would want to communicate. I don't know if Arthur has anything you'd want to add. Thank you. Um, uh, what I'd like to add is, is that um, we, uh, the clinical health uh, providers, are up for the challenge. We are ready, despite the numerous challenges that we may face, we're ready to, to put in our fair share and help um, make an impact and save as many lives as we can possibly help. Uh, but we need the help of uh, um, many players and uh, partnerships such as uh, GADP and ZDP um, uh, indispensable in this equation. Um, um, I encourage anyone to get in touch with ZDP and offer the help that they can uh, with emphasis to um, vaccination and ox oxygen. I believe prevention is better than cure. If we get as many people vaccinated we might um, um, avoid uh, um, uh, at least reduce the burden on the on the healthcare system, and uh, maybe we might uh, avoid the disaster. And um, on the other fold, once patients do get sick, uh, unfortunately, uh, very few will survive without uh, oxygen. So, oxygen, oxygen in uh, whichever form it comes. Uh, will be greatly appreciated. Okay. What message um, would you like to convey to fellows and members of the Royal College? And is there any way they can contribute and help the situation? So personally, I'd like to say um, a thank you on behalf of ZADP and GADP for everybody that has supported our partnership work throughout this pandemic, whether it's been through campaigning, through donations, through supporting projects or through the advocacy work that we've done, for example, our recent letter. Um, those contributions have really made a big difference in Zambia, but also to a lot of UK anaesthetists as well. And I think anaesthetists in the UK and all over the world, actually, really my advice would be to try and understand and to remain up to date with the situation as it's emerging in low and middle income countries during this pandemic. Um, we have a lot to learn ourselves. Our colleagues in low and middle income countries are very experienced at dealing with resource limitation and changes in resources. And we have a lot to learn in the NHS about how we can be that adaptable too. And I think that's really valuable in the pandemic. And additionally, collectively as specialists in dealing with patients with respiratory failure and in dealing with oxygen capacity, we are a huge voice anaesthetists all across the world. And we can really speak in a united way and speak together to help ensure that resources are distributed in a way that means oxygen capacity can grow a lot more in low middle income countries and be sustainable. So that it's still there to look after patients with respiratory failure and other critical illness after this pandemic as well. 
Um, so they were, thank you very much um, for contributing today, Sampui and Arthur, and for all your work and your colleagues' work, because we know it's been difficult here. It's probably be even more challenging where you are with less um, healthcare professionals at, kind of at your disposal. So really, really well done and a big thank you from all of us. Um, if anybody listening to this podcast would like to know more and find out more information, please contact GADP, Emma or Sonia, you will have heard on the, on the podcast today. The Royal College of Anaesthetists website has the global partnership pages. We publish an international anaesthetist and there's been um, quite a bit about the oxygen shortage from Indonesia and a bit about COVID and an article on GADP from Sonia and Emma in the last, the most recent edition. Also, the Royal College of Supporting Connexa. Connexa is the College of Anesthetists of Eastern, Central and Southern Africa. And again, that's supported by the Irish College and the UK College and the Association of Anesthetists. And there are people there who would be delighted to help. So um, let's work together in partnership. Um, and he, thank you all very much for your contributions today. And I think we've learned a lot about the situation in, in Zambia and um, it has added, given us more impetus and direction of travel to support each other. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note... All views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.